you know, I was only in New York for vacation. I was just recovering from a stroke. I had had a month off of work, and Richard and I decided to get out of town for a while, relax. I was trying to decide what I was doing with my photojournalism career, and we'd gone to New York because I wanted to get a leather coat for fall. I couldn't find anything else local, and we decided to stay at my ex's house in New York, and little did we know what was about to unfold because we were a block away from the World Trade Center when everything went to hell. I don't talk about this very often. I've only ever given one interview to the media. And after that, I was quite content to not be the story. So I think it's appropriate today, 20 years later, that I share my view of what happened on 9-11. I apologize for that music. That Normally I put the music out to amuse me and I was trying to find something. Obviously this I wasn't going to get a laugh out of the music on this one. And I was trying to find something and I only listened to a few seconds of this clip and I didn't know it was going to get so uh, end of the world-ish. That truly was not my intention. So I apologize for being over dramatic on that one. Um, this podcast is going to go out on 9-11. I know that I said that I was going to switch to Mondays, but I think that my waiting until Monday would be inappropriate, especially given the contents. Um, as I said in the lead-in, I don't talk about this often. I've, talking, I've spoken to some friends, and I've spoken to a shrink, of course. Um, I can't talk to Richard anymore about it because he was killed, not at 9-11, but just a few years later. And um, I think it's important. There were so many of us on the ground, photographers and journalists, and this. I think it's just important to share my point of view the way that I remember it because so I was, I didn't have any clue what was going on. I had no idea what was going on in Shanksville. I had no idea what was going on in D.C. And I had just the world in front of me collapsing and I had my camera. So I did what I was supposed to do. A couple months before 9-11, I had a stroke. I've talked about it in some other podcasts and I had a major stroke. I was on my way to um, a photo shoot and bibbity bobbity boom my legs stopped working my balance was gone my right arm was just hanging there i couldn't speak and i was drooling um profusely i had no idea what was going on and come to find out I had to crawl home because I didn't have nobody was with me. It was just a regular shoot. And I did not, for once, I did not have my phone on me, which has never happened again. And nobody would stop to help me. They all thought I was drunk. Um, so I crawled home. I called 9-11. They um, got me to the hospital as fast as they could. It was a stroke. Um, stress, fill in the blank, this, that, and the other. I had just spent the 2000, the year, the year was so goddamn busy. I covered Bush's election. I had covered, um, there was a mate, I was living in Europe and commuting back and forth. And I had covered the, at that time, I had covered the strongest earthquake to hit India since 1950 and 20,000 people were dead. And I was there for weeks. And you think 
as a photographer that it's just take your pictures, turn them in, and you know the powers that be will do the rest. And it's not that it's it's, it's not that simplistic. I had Bush's reelection. I had the earthquake. I had so many editors. I was back up. I have dual citizenship. I'm a citizen in England and I'm a citizen in the U.S. And I was working for Reuters and BBC, so I had bosses on both sides of the ocean. And each one of them is giving me different demands of the type of shoots, the pictures they want, because it's going to go over the fold. It's going to go at the top of the web page. It's going to go fill in the blank. They need something that they haven't seen. And, you know, they're, po- they're poking me with a stick and they're pissing me off. So um, I was to the point where I hated photography and I was going to leave. Richard gave his blessing. He said, you know, do what you want and I'll back you. And I'd had the stroke. I, um, the legs came back very quickly. My arm came back soon after. My voice did not come back for a year. I, it was, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. It was a combination of Harvey Firestein and Darth Vader if they had had a love child and all I could manage was a whisper. So that's what I sounded like for a year. Um, and I had a lot of physical therapy. I had a lot of mental baggage going on with it. And Richard came up with the idea that we should go to New York, just get a week out of town, fuck the world, and just do what we got to do. I was down for that. We're going to stay at my ex's house. My ex at that time was a, is, and still is, he's a, um, he's in the fashion industry and he's done extremely well for himself. He was not in New York at the time and we could use his place, which was right off Central Park. And we didn't have an agenda for the entire time we were there other than just, you know, fuck around, spend money, have fun. And we were there probably about a week prior to 9-11. And that day, it was just gorgeous out. I mean, it was, it was fall was just starting. Hey, you, you know, you, fall, fall is my season. I love fall. And it just had that little bit of crisp going on. It was a blue sky. It was just gorgeous out. And what we had planned to do is Richard had wanted to go to the World Trade Center. We were going to go to, you know, top of the tower, have breakfast, and we were going to figure out the rest of our day from there. And I was like, okay, um, if you know the geography of New York, um, the World Trade Center versus Central Park, I I didn't feel at the time that I wanted to dick around with a cab. I just, you know, trying to get a cab in rush hour, I didn't have the mental ability to deal with all that bullshit. And my legs were starting to come back. Uh, I wanted to walk. It was about an hour walk. And I figured, okay, you know, fine. We'll get to see the city. I'll snap off a bunch of pictures. And so off we went. And we wanted to get there early enough to where the restaurant wasn't packed. But they weren't, we didn't want to walk in on breakfast rush hour. So, you know, we set off, figured out the timing. And we figured it probably, because I was walking a little slower, we figured it would probably take us two hours to do the walk. So off we went. Saw all the sights. Great. You know, I got tons of pictures. And back then, you know, this is 20 years ago, um, digital cameras then weren't as sophisticated as they are now. I mean, they, they took pictures and they did have add-ons for Wi-Fi, but it was very, it was extremely, number one, it was extremely hard to come by and it was extremely goddamn expensive. And unfortunately, my bosses on either side of the ocean, they paid for it because I was always out in the field and they needed access to whatever I shot. So the Wi-Fi, primitive as it was, uh, the Wi-Fi would connect 
to anybody's modem and then dial in and you didn't have a real great user interface, it would just send to the phone, it would send a file off to an email address that you had to punch in on this little goddamn screen and off it would send. It was, if you can remember how bad it was trying to dial into America Online, it was just that bad. So that's what we were dealing with, with that, with that kind of camera. It was a Nikon. You know, Nikon's always made a great camera I've shot with them all my life. But comparatively, the cameras I have now versus then prehistoric, <laughs> to say the least. Um, so off we went. And we got to, we could see the World Trade Center coming closer and closer as we got to it. And right around quarter to nine, we started to hear behind us, we started to hear this rumble. And it was getting really, really loud. We Initially, we couldn't see it, but it was getting so fucking loud and it the rumble was so out of place because it didn't belong there was no train around it, you know we, there wasn't a normal flight pattern so something was definitely fucking wrong and then we saw it we saw it because it passed right over us i mean it was i don't even know how high it was the shadow of the plane passed over the top of both of us and as we looked up and i'm shooting pictures of this um you could see every bit of the plane even without the camera lens you could see every detail on the plane that's how low it was so it was something was definitely wrong and i'm thinking in my head that the controls on the plane are gone something absolutely catastrophic has happened and he's he's going he's going to hit something i didn't know until much later what was going on and he initially then as soon as it passed overhead whoosh right into the tower and a couple of things stood out for me when we saw this i'm busy just maniacally shooting and richard has got his fingers in my belt in my belt loop because he's going to be he's he was my big protector. He was going to be my eyes, let me work, but by the same token, keep me out of harm's way because we didn't know what the fuck was going on. And if I had to get pulled out of the line of fire, so to speak, he wanted hand on me. So I'm shooting and into the tower, the plane goes. And what struck me was that you would think that an airline, a jet that big, that fast would have made a huge, huge explosive noise. It didn't. It didn't. It wasn't whisper quiet, but it was just whoosh. And then boom, after it went in, that's when all hell broke loose. Because essentially, I mean, you know, those wings are completely filled with fuel and it's just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of gallons. And now it's flown into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. It was so much quieter than we expected. And Richard, for once, Richard and I didn't have anything to say except, oh, fuck. Because it's dawning on us what we just witnessed, that everybody in that plane is likely dead. And worse, where the plane went into the tower, everybody above the impact point is not only not dead, they have no way to get out. So they they're literally are about to die. And that's what struck me because it was just the absolute horror. You can you can put yourself in the place of anybody in that position and just the horror of what's going to happen because there's, there's just absolutely no way to get out, get them out of there. They're done. They're done. I don't know how many floors were above the impact point. There are quite a few. You know, it hit it, it hit it higher than half. So everybody beneath the impact point with the exception of you know above and below with the floors um they have a chance to get out of the building the people above those floors 
in the restaurant where we were going to go. Um, they're done. They're done. They're ju- they have to wait a slow, agonizing amount of time to die. Whether the fire gets them or the building collapses, it just, I can't think of a more horrible way to go. And that's what struck me while I'm taking these pictures. And I'm starting to cry. Richard's already crying. I'm trying to shoot these pictures while I'm crying. And Richard is feeding me memory cards from my bag because I'm snapping so many of them that they're filling up and he's just feeding to me one after the other. And then we have to try to find some way to connect, cover everything, and then connect to some sort of internet that was there at the time to try to get these pictures to my editors because I'm on the ground. I'm not even supposed to be working. I was on disability on the books for either one of them. I was on disability. My being there was just a complete horseshit accident. But of course, I'm going to shoot everything I possibly can. Um, there was a um, there was an insurance. That's what, it was an insurance agency. It was close. They're out on the street watching, and somebody's inside the building. They're talking to their family. And that, and I, you know, we got in. Go, can I use your computer? I'm, here's what I'm doing, etc. So they said, sure, whatever. Got rid of that batch of photos. Came back out, and the rumbling, that fucking rumbling, starts all over again. And this time we knew something was wrong. We knew that another plane was coming. We didn't know anything about it except that there's no way it's a it's a um, memory fa- or memory. Listen to that. And there's no way it's a control failure that this is intentional. These planes are these planes are coming down initially. Richard had thought that there was something common between both planes that was bringing them down. Didn't realize it was intentional. Yeah, you know, the second one hit the second tower, and the debris is coming down. The fires where they went in are rapidly expanding and jet fuel. I've never looked up the science behind it, but jet fuel is essentially gasoline on steroids. It's going to burn hotter. It's going to burn longer. It's going to burn worse. And now it's inside both towers and it's burning the buildings. It's, it's, it's killing the people above them that are stuck and it's risking everybody beneath it as they try to get the hell out. Everybody, the pandemonium I've covered elections. I've covered wars. I covered that in uh, earthquake in India. Three years after that, I was in Indonesia covering the tsunami, and I'm used to chaos and catastrophe. The chaos of New York on 9-11 was something I'd never seen before, and Richard and I have the responsibility for ourselves of my trying to get the job done and he looking out for both of our lives. That's how it just split. I can't do both of them, and he knew it, so he's going to watch out for me. He's going to he's going to be my safety eyes while I'm trying to work and dump these photos because the faster they get out, the better. I was just in the right place at the right the right place at the wrong time, rather. And because I'd wanted to get to the World Trade Center earlier for breakfast, and Richard had a habit, God bless him, of being systemically late to the point it was comical. If he had said he was going to be somewhere at ten thirty, you automatically knew that that was going to be eleven oh five. That's just how he was. If he had, if he didn't have that habit. But we would have been in the tower. We would have been in the tower. We would have either been on our way up or we would have been elbow deep in our breakfast. So that is the only thing that saved us from being inside the building. I am. I have a complete case of cotton mouth. I am going to take a quick break right here. I'm going to insert the obligatory commercial and I will be right back.
Okay, that's enough of that music track. I didn't have the ability to change it, so I'm just trying to keep those as short as possible because the more I listen to it, the more I hate it. Um, I apologize. Like I said, I don't talk about this often, and understandably, hopefully you get it, that my witnessing this and the time that I spent on the ground afterwards wound up giving me a lot of PTSD around it, and I have no embarrassment in telling you that it was a lot of time on the shrink's couch getting rid of that. So um, my getting dry mouth and reliving this over and over is not unexpected. Um, when I took a break, I had just recounted that um, the second tower had been hit. We were using that insurance agency as our base of operations, so to speak. They, We didn't want to try to run away from the scene, and they had working phone service for the most part. Yeah, I wanted to get out as many pictures as I could before, you know, the utilities died. We didn't, we saw the two planes coming. We didn't know where there were more. And my calling my editors and telling them what I was sending them, you know, these pictures were just raw. I didn't have a whole lot of time to set anything up. It was just a matter of what is my eye catch, shoot it, send it. And then my editors on either side are going to clean them up and they're going to print them. A lot of pictures that you saw from the ground on 9-11 were mine. And AP, uh, BBC, and Reuters were selling, or just commercially putting them out to every everybody who asked for them. As soon as they paid the money, off it went. That's how that's how it works. When you, when your pool, if you're freelance, you you can get to put your name on everything. When you're a pool photographer, even somebody who had been there as long as I have, when you kick in the when you kick in the goods, you get your fee, and you also get percentage of how many print runs, so in exchange for the lack of byline because AP will claim the rights. So the second tower has been hit. We didn't know if there were more. The fires are burning. People are running. We were close enough to, I'm trying to get pictures, and I'm also trying to stay out of the way. And so it was a balance because we want the first responders to get in there, and I don't want to interrupt anything. I want to just try. It was the hardest job I'd ever shot because so much was happening that I I only had time to just do what I could. My D was in my wallet, so now it's around my neck. And no, none of the cops that were on the ground or anybody really stopped me. I badge him, and I go, and Richard's right behind me. They didn't question him for an ID. They just figured, you know, they, they worked together. So I'm getting all the shots that I can, and it's been probably about an hour I think, and the fire's burning, where the people who are above the impact point, some of them either fell. I'm convinced in some of the shots that I have, I witnessed a man jump to his death, and it was probably 70 stories, 75 maybe. It was almost at the top of the tower, and there's just no way to get to them, and he had decided, apparently, that that was the way he preferred to go. I got my shots. I didn't look when he impacted. I, I didn't have the ability to look at that. Richard didn't either. Um, you can imagine, I'm not going to articulate that any further. You can imagine a 70-story drop on a human body. And we saw that a couple of times. And about an hour after the fires, the crash and the fire, we started to feel the ground shake. 
it was just an instant. It was starting to shake, and I'm looking at the building, and it's burning. And the shaking is kind of in sync with the rumbling. And Richard put, puts his arm, he's, he's still got a grip on my belt, and he put his arm around my neck, and he screamed at me over everything that is coming down. we got to go now. And he's pulling me back to the insurance agency. He's running back. I mean, my legs aren't 100%, and Richard was not. I'm a big guy. Richard was not a big guy. He was maybe five foot ten, and I'd guess on a good day, 180. The path that we beat from where I was to the insurance agency, I think maybe my feet touched the ground a couple of times because Richard wasn't having it. He had his arm around me, and he was going to drag me one way or the other out of the line of fire. And just as we got into the insurance agency, down it came. It was like it didn't tip over, you know, it didn't fall when we, it just, everything seemed to pancake one layer on top of the other. It was like, if you picture an accordion opening and closing, if you picture an accordion closing, how that looks, that's how it looked when the tower came down. And, you know, people saw the open door, so they're running in to get out of the chaos and, you know, the debris that's coming. And you just knew that more people were about to die, the people who were above the impact point, anybody who couldn't have gotten out of the tower. Because you figure, as big as the towers were, getting everybody out below the impact point in under an hour or hour-ish, I don't remember the times I wasn't looking. It had to... It had to be impossible. There had to have been people left behind who just couldn't get out. And for whatever reason, the people who above who were above the impact point, they were dead. Even before even before they stopped breathing, they were dead. There was just no hope for them. So the debris that came with it was just unimaginable. I'd never seen anything like it. And we're trying to let people in as much as we could without letting a cloud of debris come in with it. Because if it comes in the insurance agency, we're all dead. It was not a big office, and we've got it packed with as many people as we could get in. But if that funnel cloud of debris comes in with it, and the next time we open the door, we're all dead. We're in a shoebox, and it's just it's going to choke us all to death. So that finished, and um, of course it took quite a while to stop lingering and it didn't get anywhere near being completely on the ground and here comes the second tower it went same pancake as the first one and i'm trying to send off photos while we still have connection my editors are telling me that dc has been hit i found out another phone call that a plane went down in pennsylvania and that we were absolutely under attack somebody was attacking us that's all they didn't have any hard proof but that's all that they could surmise. All of these planes in different areas that they were, somebody was attacking us. They'd gotten a hold of these planes and they were using them as missiles. So we had to endure um, a second dust cloud and the collapse of the building. And you're literally watching people run for their lives if they can. Um, I know that I watch some people just die being trampled on because they couldn't move fast enough. If you can... Imagine a scenario of the chaos that I would have seen on the ground. It happened, and we got to watch it. And that's what 9-11 looked like from a block away, from a professional photographer's standpoint. It was something that 
I never expected to see. I didn't plan on seeing. I had planned on coming back from my trip to New York and resigning. I, I was I was done. I was just burnt out. Uh, the stress of the job, as far as I'm concerned, caused a stroke. And I was going to get the hell out of there. And I didn't realize at the time that the impact the photo the photographs that I had taken were having because I mean I'm in a communication bubble. I'm just talking to my editor. Of course, there's not there's nothing for me to look at. Phones that we had don't didn't have the frills that we did we do now. Um, and so I'm just living on secondary information. And we once the chaos. Hang on one second. I'm sorry. Once the chaos had subsided. Yeah, there is no trains running. There's no budget. There's no roads. There's nothing. So everybody is just walking the hell out. They're getting away from the World Trade Center. Those that can walk are doing it. And there's just this mass exodus the hell out of town. And I had decided, however foolishly, that I was going to stay. Um, I'm working now. This is the story of a lifetime. Um, yeah, I couldn't in good conscience just say fuck it and walk. So I decided that I was going to stay. Um, <laughs> God bless Richard because he knew that there was no way to get me out of there. And he decided he was going to stay with me. And I ended up staying on the ground for the next two weeks. I shot as much as I could. Um, I slept whatever flat surface I could find that was safe. Um, we did make it back to my ex's place occasionally because there's only so much that you can do and you just run out of steam and mentally everything that I had seen was starting to catch up with me. And I just, you can't look at that over and over and over without it changing you. And I hadn't, I didn't have the coping skills to deal with those changes. It was starting to fester and I was starting to feel it. I'm watching people jumping out of skyscrapers and burnt alive and the, the plane crashes and these and all of this is creating this chaos in my head. And so a few times you just have to walk away from it. And I was fine with that. You know, I did what I needed to do as a photographer and I got my pictures out there. Anything else was gravy. But I ended up going back to photograph the recover efforts to get as many photographs as I could possibly get. And I stayed there for a couple of weeks. And I didn't realize at the time how it was going to rejuvenate my career. I, of course, by now, you know, as the cast had settled, there's media everywhere. And I gave exactly one interview. I had no intention of becoming the story. I wasn't going to do it. I didn't want publicity to be about my efforts photographing. I wanted it to be about the attack that we just witnessed. Yeah, the people that were lost and how many first responders were literally there night and day, not only to get out the people that were needed rescuing, but to get out their peers, their brothers and sisters. I think all totaled New York lost between fire and you know, police and you know, Port Authority. They lost 600 people that day. They were just, they had died in various um, ways of trying to rescue people. They they gave their lives that day. There were that many. Um, and it just, it had to be documented for the next generation. It had to be properly cared for, for, for memoriam's sake. And that's why I kept going back. 
I, um, here comes the cotton mouth again, I'm sorry. Um, I did end up, after 9-11, becoming an embedded photographer and traveling overseas. And I'm not, that's not going to be part of this podcast because it'll just make it way too long and um, way too about me as opposed to 9-11 itself. But I, before I left New York City, I published every photograph that I could with the exception of a handful of memory cards um, that I still have not published. I don't have the courage to look at them, and I haven't for 20 years. I know what's on them. I know that, um, you, I know what's on them, and I've had an internal debate for 20 years about the value of sharing them publicly and whether or not it would be sensationalized whether or not it would be treated with the proper reverence due to the contents and the fact that these are people who were hor- to, you know, brass tacks, who, people who were horribly murdered that day. And I know that these photographs are important, but I don't want to bring them out just yet. I will never publish them to the internet. I will not give these memory cards to anyone. They are in a safe deposit box. And they are also part of my last will and testament if something should happen to me right now that uh, my executor will uh, hand them over to my prior employers at BBC to decide the public value of publishing them because I don't want them turned into a profit vehicle for anyone. They, they're actually the first item on my, will, on my last will and testament that if I die, that they are to be sent immediately to the BBC and have them take a look at the contents and determine the public value. So there you have it. Um, I can't, yeah, I'm trying to think of the words. That's why I'm sitting here just absolutely saying nothing. Part of me, believe it or not, is glad that I was there for 9-11 because you don't, even you know what it did for my photography career aside, even witnessing that firsthand tv didn't do it justice it really didn't i mean msnbc did wonderful coverage but to live it on the ground was something that you not only get an appreciation for the lives that were lost you get an appreciation of the first responders that pulled no punches in rescuing anybody that needed rescuing. They didn't. They, they did not hold back at all. I, these people, the term heroes is completely overused, but it's the only one that fits. Um, I remember distinctly uh, Reverend Michael Judge when he died. He was hit. He was, the man was tireless. And I remember distinctly hearing that he had been killed by debris and giving people last rites and assisting. And I remember watching all these different first responders that were carrying out his dead body on a chair. And he was not covered. They didn't have the ability. And I remember thinking that it really, that's what, <laughs> I'm not crying, you're crying. Um, that's what really struck me. The worst of it was just the flipping of the switch. And this man was, at that time, I believe, probably close to twice my age. And he was tireless, tireless. He never left the ground. And he ended up dying, giving giving back to people, just like so many others that day. In addition to the people who were inside the towers, just that catastrophic loss of life, just something that doesn't shake you, trust me. I've tried to sort that out on the psychiatrist's couch for many, many years, and we just never got to the bottom of that one. (laughs) 
But would I have preferred that 9-11 was a nice, quiet day? Of course. Absolutely, of course. It was just one of those things that it gives you a lot to be reflective on, having witnessed what I did. So if you get anything out of this podcast, hopefully you get a reflection of what happened that day and how many people died. You get to park all of the cesspool that is U.S. politics right now and just take a minute and remember how many people died that day for no reason other than a terrorist hated us. And by a terrorist, I mean the one who masterminded everything with the 20 people who ended up killing so, so many. Um, This has been cathartic, to say the least, so I appreciate you if you listened this far. You put up with a lot, especially with my hemming and hawing and my constant, uh, this is, if you can't already tell, this is a completely freestyle podcast. I just did not want to do anything except talk about my involvement on the ground and just get it off my chest for once. If you got anything out of this podcast, great. If you did not, then this podcast was not meant for you because there's probably, hopefully, I pray, one person who got something out of it. Maybe that pocket to this podcast was meant for them and it just wasn't meant for you. It wasn't your turn. Um, I love all you guys. And like I said at the start, this podcast will take the place of what I would have put out on Monday. I'm doing it early because I think it needs to be out today. So, Love you guys for hanging around. I am going to get up and get this out of my head. I'm going to go find a puppy to hug, and we will talk soon.